Well, good morning, everybody. Let's stand. We're going to sing to our great God. But before we do that, I want to read one of my favorite Bible verses. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. So let's praise this God who is over all things. Let's give him everything we have this morning.
breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity there will be a day when all will bow before him there will be a day when death will be no more standing face to face with he who died and rose again holy holy is the lord and every prayer we prayed in desperation the songs of faith we sang through doubt and fear and in the end we see that it was worth it when he returns to wipe away our tears oh there will be a day when all will bow before him there will be a day join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice a thousand generations sing worthy is the lamb who was slain and on that day we join the resurrection and beside the heroes of the faith with one voice a thousand generations sing worthy is the land who was slain oh forever he shall reign
Have a seat, have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Hey, everyone, as you're finding a seat, grab that welcome card. It should say welcome on the top, or if it's flipped over, it'll say prayer. Grab that card out and let your neighbor see it so we all know what we're talking about. That's our card that we love for everybody to fill it out. If you'd start filling that out, we would be uh, very appreciative of that. Uh, look, if you're new, fill out as much as you feel comfortable with. We would love to uh, know that you're here. Love to send you a gift in the mail. Uh, it is so fun to do stuff like that, and we would love it. And uh, also include a prayer request. If everyone include a prayer request on that, and we'll receive those at the very end of the service. As you're filling those out, a couple things that I'd love for you to know about. It's in your worship guide. Uh, we have our Christmas Eve services uh, next Sunday at 9 and 11. Hey, look, there is a lot of people want to come to church. They want to go to church for Christmas. Uh, a lot of people who don't have churches, and they don't necessarily know what church to go to. And honestly, they would love to be invited to a church. So I want to encourage you to do that. We are, we are prepared to have folks, we, especially folks who are not familiar with church, we're, we're preparing for that. We're going to read the Christmas story to the kids. We're going to have a uh, Christmas skit. We're going to have some singing and, and a great gospel message. So uh, if you see someone and, and, and just have the confidence, say, hey, you know what? Our church is doing this, and I, I bet they say yes. So I'm going to pray for them in just a second. We are going to receive the Lord's Supper as well, and I'm thankful for that time because, hey, it is busy right now, isn't it? You guys feel it? You can kind of sit back in your chair and do a deep breath and say, hey, you know what? I'm at church today. We're getting ready to remember the Lord's sacrifice. We're going to refocus and kind of tune out some of the busyness that the world has for us. So let's pray. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful in Jesus' name that you've given us this Lord's Supper because we need to pause from our busy week and focus on the death of Jesus. What a great gift that you gave to us, your son's sacrifice to secure our eternity. And Father, I pray right now you'd lay someone in our heart that we need to invite next week. God, that you give us boldness and confidence to say, hey, uh, I know I don't know what you're doing for Christmas Eve, but would you come on? And Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, help us fill this place with folks that need to hear about your son, Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and watch this video to explain a little bit more about the Lord's Supper. We are about to participate in what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper. As members of Great Commission Church, we enjoy being reminded that Christ Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says, For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible also says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Lord's Supper is an activity where we rejoice together that we still believe in Jesus. We believe He is the one who helps us to keep loving God and loving each other. We proclaim He is alive and coming back one day. If you are a guest here today and share this saving faith in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. If you are not a Christian or prefer to do this at your own local church, you can simply remain in your seat and observe how we do this. Unbaptized children can come to the table, but we ask that you withhold the elements and use this as a time to spark their questions and continue your gospel conversations with them. At this time, our ushers will release groups by rows.
Let's all stand and sing one more song together this morning.
till the sun of righteousness light and life to all he brings risen with he begin his wings mild he lays his glory by born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King. Amen. Glory to the newborn King. You all can have a seat. In 1964, CBS premiered Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in Claymation. You know the classic TV show? It came on last night. My 18-year-old son, well, I don't know where he is, but it was as if he, be, he became eight years old, and he's like, Dad, it's on. I was like, I know. I want to sit down and watch it. I've been watching Rudolph since I can remember. You guys, have you ever seen it? And then Angie and I started judging it. <laughs> because, you know, you're supposed to be afraid of the abominable snowman and that lumberjack Yukon Cornelius, uh, but, but they end up being lovable. You know who are the mean jerks? It's like Rudolph's dad. He, he body shames his son. If you think about it, it's like, I don't like the way you look. Cover that nose up. And, and uh, then, then, they, the, then there's that elf that, Oh, you know, he just wants to live his life, and he wants to have, he wants to go into New Horizons. They box him in. He just wants to be a dentist, right? And like, no, you got to make toys. And, and then Santa comes along, and he, he and, and Rudolph's standing there, and he turns to Rudolph's dad, and he says, I'm so disappointed in you. You had a son like this. I was like, I can't, how did this become a classic? <laughs> the, uh, all the, uh, the other reindeer bully Rudolph. I mean, it, imagine if that happened today. And there was a school board meeting. Rudolph's mom would have gone to that meeting and just kind of raised some cane, right? It's just a, sometimes if you just think about our Christmas traditions and really think about them, you go, what are, what are we teaching the next generation? Last week we talked about the top 25 Christmas songs on Spotify. None of them mentioned Jesus or his birth. And so I thought, well, let's take this Christmas hymn that we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And some of those old Christmas carols teach sound doctrine. And so you end up singing the gospel in the gathering of the saints. And so last week, we took that line, God and sinners reconciled, from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and we, we preached about how you could be reconciled to God. And today we're taking another line from that, that Christmas carol, and we're preaching about that, and then one more next Sunday on Christmas Eve. But here's the, here's the verse of the carol that I'm focusing on today. Christ by highest heaven adored. And we can just stop right there and remember 
that before Jesus was a baby, he was the eternal word, the second person of the triune Godhead, enthroned in heaven and worshiped by the most powerful beings God ever made. The prince of heaven, Christ by highest heaven adored. That was what he was accustomed to. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. It's interesting that God allowed 4,000 years of human history to go by before coming to earth as a man. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Now, Christians believe some very weird things. At the top of the list, we believe a dead man who was crucified walked out of a grave three days after he died, and because of that resurrection, we have hope. That's my favorite. But we also believe that that same man was protected by his Father in heaven when he came to earth to be like one of us. And instead of inheriting Adam's sin, God put him in a virgin's womb, a virgin conception. I believe it. Do you believe it? Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. You know, the, the Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. But for you to even have a, a hope of a glimpse of seeing God with your eyes, he had to veil his glory in flesh. He had, to, he had to tone it down and turn down the brightness of the Shekinah glory, enter a human body for you to gaze on anything like God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And that's the title of my message today, hail the incarnate deity. We're gonna talk about Jesus being incarnate, and we're going to talk about Jesus being deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So, let's talk about this today. Got one verse to, to springboard us into biblical truth. Find John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, book number four of the New Testament, chapter one. The classic verse of God becoming a man is John 1.14. And it reads this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When the Bible says the word became flesh, when, we read, when John 1.14 says that the word became flesh, it is not saying the Bible became a person. The word in John chapter 1 is what Jesus was called before he became a man. We believe in a triune God. One what, three who's. The what is God. There's one God. He's the what. The who's are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And another name for the Son that John writes in John 1 is the Word. Jesus is the breath, the, the spoken Word of the Godhead. The Word became flesh. It became incarnate. And then we have, and he dwelt among us. Now the word dwelt, interesting word, 
It's the word for, it, it turns a, a noun into a verb. It's the word for a, a tabernacle or a tent. Do you remember the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel in the Old Testament? And they cross the Red Sea unscathed, and they, they, but they wander around rebelling against God for 40 years in the desert. They, they, they don't have faith. They don't believe in him, and so their bodies fall out there. But they, they follow God in his graciousness. He reveals himself or he manifests himself in a pillar of cloud in the daytime. So they looked up and they saw the cloud, and wherever the cloud went, they went. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. So when the darkness overcame the land, they could see the, the glowing fire of God. And, then, and, and where did they make their sacrifices? Where did they worship the Lord in the wilderness wandering? It was in the tabernacle, the, the tent, the, the mobile place of worship. And that's the word here, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the word became flesh and, and, and he pitched his tent in our camp and he hung out with us. He, he, he tabernacled with us. The word became flesh, moved around with us, and then we beheld his glory. And it was a different kind of glory than anything else on earth. It was the glory as of the only begotten. And John chapter one, verse 14, points back to two Old Testament chapters, Exodus 32, Exodus 33. Moses is on the mountain, Mount Sinai with God, and he's having a conversation with God. You know what Moses says? Moses says, it is so incredible to be on this mountain, God, in your presence. I can't get enough of it. Would you show me your glory? You know what God says? He said, Moses, if I did that, you wouldn't survive it. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Make a deal with you. I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock, in the seam of the mountain. So if things get rough, you can just hide behind mountainous boulder rocks and I'll, I'll cause my glory to pass by. And you can't see me from the front, but I'll give you just a glimpse of my back. And, and maybe you'll live through it to tell about it. And then he says, to Moses, I'll show you my glory and I'll have all my goodness pass in front of you. Listen, when God left heaven to redeem sinners and he took on human flesh and he humbled himself to be like us, he was being good to us. He was showing his pristine character and the, the sum total of his love. You can see my glory and you'll know that I'm good. I'm gonna come and hang out in the camp with you. I'm gonna move around with you. You're gonna be able to relate to me. And you'll, you'll have the fear of God, but it won't be the fear that I'm gonna destroy you. It'll be the kind of fear that happens when you come into the presence of something so bigger than you, so much more powerful, so holy and good, it's gonna buckle your knees. You won't be able to stand up in my presence, but you won't wanna leave my presence. It'll be my goodness. Show me your glory, okay? I'll have my goodness pass before you. Why did the word become flesh? It was for us to see the goodness of God. And how good is God? 
the message translation of the Bible was a paraphrase. It says of John 1.14, he put skin on and moved into the neighborhood. He lived in his tent among us when he's used to being in the palace of heaven. And God has now chosen to be with his people in a more personal way than ever before. The word became flesh. And I want you to know that Jesus is not just a transcendent representative of God. He is a full human being. That's what John 1.14 teaches us. He is God incarnate, God enfleshed. And the same one who brought the universe into existence is now born within that same universe as a lowly human. The problem is this thought is so familiar to us that we're no longer staggered by it. It's just normal and common. It no longer takes our breath away for the most part. Let me give you a good theological definition of the teaching that God became a man. It's called the doctrine of the incarnation. And here's what it teaches. It's what the Bible teaches about that. That Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten before all the ages, and of one substance with the Father, was made flesh through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, making him truly God and truly human, possessing two natures. The hymn writer called it incarnate deity. Possessing two natures, which are not confused, not changed, not divided, not separated. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, but you say pastor, and I say what? And you say, pastor, does the word incarnation appear in the Bible anywhere? And I say to you, it's taught everywhere. The word is just a summary that we made up, but it was anticipated in the Old Testament and it's clearly taught from beginning to end in the New Testament. Look no further than perhaps the most famous Christmas verse, Matthew 1, 21. And she will bring forth a what? A son. She will bring forth a son. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Everybody knows what a son is, right? Even in this messed up world we live in, it's trying to make you confused about gender and all of that. We know what a son is. A son is a male human offspring. She will bring forth a male human little boy, a son. Here's the name you give him, Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. And then the rest of the verse explains it because he will save his people from their sins. By the way, Jesus, not saving everybody. I've been thinking about this. I don't know if it's tragic, ironic, or both, that it is possible to go to hell and be damned forever from this room. You can find yourself regularly in the presence of the saints of God here at Great Commission Church. And I want you to know, I've been here from the beginning. I know who the saints of God are. I don't know all of them. 
But I, well, here's what I mean by that. I've watched God transform some people's hearts and get the real thing. So I know that your time here is spent with those that Jesus has saved. What I don't understand is how anyone can regularly hear the good news and just keep putting it off. She'll call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now, here's my sermon outline. Very simple, pretty brief. I'm going to answer one question with three answers. Here's the question. What did Jesus, who is incarnate deity, what did Jesus claim about himself? What did he say about him? Here's the first question, first answer to the question. He claimed to be a man. Jesus made it crystal clear that he's the God-man. And he didn't stutter, he didn't stammer, he didn't trip over this. He wants you to know that he can relate to you in your own humanity because he became exactly like you. So we read in John chapter 8, the religious leaders object, they're, they're debating with Jesus and they say to him, Abraham is our father. So when it comes to pedigree and bloodlines, top that. I mean, we're standing on the religious mountain at the peak of it. We have coursing through our veins the very DNA of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The three patriarchs chosen by God and preserved through all of his judgments from, from the Old Testament until now. We have Abraham as our father, and Jesus says, oh, really? If he were your father, you would do his works. And here's what he means. You don't look too much like Abraham to me. And then, once he got their attention, he followed that up with John chapter 8, verse 40. But now you seek to kill me. What are the next two words? Amen. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. What did Jesus Christ claim about himself? He claimed to be one of us. He claimed to be a man. How human was he? Well, John's gospel shows you this all over the place. Just go to the woman at the well in John chapter four. First of all, he talks to the woman at the what? The well. What do you get at well? Water. You know what he says to her in John chapter four, verse seven? He says, would you give me a drink? Who gets thirsty? People, not gods. So he says, will you give me a drink? At the, be at the beginning of John chapter 4, he kind of takes an exit off the highway to go to the well, and he sends his disciples into town to buy food. He's like, hey, it's about lunchtime. I need you guys to go get the meal, bring it back to me. I got some stuff I've got to do. So he sends the disciples into town to buy food. They show back up in verse 31 of chapter 4 of John, and they say, Rabbi, eat. Who has to eat? Who gets thirsty? Weak, fleshly humans. And then much later in John's gospel, in chapter 11, verse 35, what you've been told is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's two words. And what does it say? Jesus 
wept. Jesus cried at a funeral the death of his friend because what you feel in the loss of the death of a friend or a loved one, Jesus felt, and the reason he felt it is because he was a man. What did Jesus claim about himself? He claimed to be a man. And he took a title. When I talk about incarnate deity today, I'm going to talk about two titles of Jesus. Jesus took a title that points to his being human. His most often self-designation, what he called himself the most, was son of man. And what is a son of man, a human? And let me talk about being a son of man. In the Gospels, Jesus frequently referred to himself as the son of man. But we hear about it first in the Old Testament, and, and with one glaring exception that we'll get to, when you see the phrase son of man in the Old Testament, it is always used to emphasize human weakness in comparison to God. So if you're a son of man, you're always being compared to God and you don't measure up. So we start in Numbers 23, 19. It won't be on the screen. God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Sinners repent, human people repent, Son of men, sons of men repent. God is not like that. Has God said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? There's a parallel verse to Numbers 23, 19 in Romans in the New Testament where it says, let, let, let God be true and all men liars. And what it means is, if you're a son of man, you, you don't measure up to God at all. Because you speak and lie, you, you, you fail and need to repent. God's not like that. And when God makes promises, he always keeps them. That's Numbers 23, 19. Here's another one. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? The psalmist is writing this awesome Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he says, when I think about this, God, why do you even give us the time of day? What is man that you're mindful of him? Why do you give us any attention at all? The son of man that you should visit him. Who are we compared to you? So the son of man, most of the time in the Old Testament, was a little bit of a belittling, humbling title with one major exception. And it's the exception that proves the rule and the exception that gives you all the insight. And it's found in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we learn of a different kind of son of man. It's one, it's a son of man not who doesn't compare to God. It's just the opposite. It's a, it's a son of man who will come from heaven. He'll be given power and authority to rule. And he'll also, though, experience suffering. You need to know Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll read, I'll read it now. Daniel was a prophet, and so God spoke to him in visions and dreams, and he says, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And 
This is the coolest designation for God the Father in all the Old Testament, in my humble but accurate opinion. He came to the Ancient of Days. How cool is that? He came to his father, the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him, to the one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 14, if it sounds familiar to you at all, it's because you've read it in the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because Daniel and Revelation fit together like two pieces of the same puzzle. In Revelation, it's the, it's the I am, it's the Alpha and the Omega, it's the Lamb on the throne who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And before him are all peoples, nations, and languages, and they will serve him. In other words, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the risen Lamb of God in Revelation. It is the Lord Jesus. And so when he calls himself Son of Man, he's not talking about the one that says, who are you, O God, and why why would you be mindful of a Son of Man like me? He's the Son of Man in Daniel 7 with an everlasting kingdom, and around his throne in the next world will be people from all tribes and nations and languages, all of the people that he's redeemed. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's saying, I'm the one the ancient of days gave the everlasting kingdom to. I'm incarnate, deity. Not only that, you get to the writings of Paul, the the letters of Paul in the New Testament, and Paul called Jesus in the same sentence, the Lord who's a man. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47 The first man was of the earth made of dust. What was his name, church? Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And what is his name? Jesus, who saves his people from their sin. So Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam, made of dust, Ruined everything, just, just a big fail, a big strikeout. And we know from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that, that from the sinfulness of Adam, we've all been infected with rebellion against God. The first Adam messed it all up. The second Adam is the Lord, a man from heaven. Jesus is a man. He came in the likeness of human beings and he appeared in a way that was clearly recognizable as human. And when he did, listen to me, my brothers and my sisters, he accomplished a monumental task, Philippians 2.8. And being found in appearance as a man, meaning when you looked at the Lord Jesus on earth, he looked like one of us. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And when I think about obedience to God, I'm more thankful to Jesus. I'm more thankful for Jesus' obedience than on my best day that I ever lived. Because when Jesus obeyed his father, he went to the cross for me. 
when Jesus submitted himself to the ancient of days, it ended in the sacrifice for the ages that made a way for me to be reconciled to God and not pay for my sins. I'm so thankful for the obedience unto death by Jesus Christ. Because he's a man. But not only did he claim to be a man, you know what else he claimed to be. Jesus also claimed to be God, number two. (laughs) In John chapter eight, Jesus looks at those religious leaders again that he's arguing with, and he says to them something unreal. He says, did you guys know that Abraham rejoiced to see my day? And they said, okay, lunatic, you're not even yet 50 years old, and you want me to believe that Abraham, who died 2,500 years before this, you want me to believe that you've met Abraham? And Jesus is like, no, not that I've met Abraham, it's that Abraham met me. You're not yet 50 years old. And then John 8, 58. My brothers and my sisters, there is not a more clear, there's not a clearer claim to deity made by the Lord Jesus than in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. You know what I am is? It's the divine name. It's the name that Moses said, God, if you want me to go talk to Pharaoh for you, which I really don't want to do because I don't talk so good, if you really want me to go and stand in front of the most powerful king on planet earth and tell him that he's got to let all of his workforce go so they can worship God, what in the world is your name? And you remember what God said? You see, every time you see in your Bible the word Lord, and it's in all capital letters, it's the divine name, it's Yahweh. He says, tell them, I am that I am. You know what that means? God owns all the tenses, past, present, and future. It's not I was who I is, amen, right? It's not not I am who I will be. It is just I am, and you can put a period at the end of that two-word sentence. That is all of God's name. It is all-encompassing. And Jesus says, I am. I'll take God's divine name for myself. What did Jesus Christ claim about himself? He said, I'm a man. And he also says, I am God. Not a God. That's the error of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's the error of the Mormons. Not not one God among many, not I was, not a God, and now I am. I am God. No definite article necessary. And so Jesus had the title Son of Man to point to his humanity. He has another title to point to his deity. It's Son of God. Do you know this? Now, two questions about Son of God. Who was called the Son of God or God's Son in the Old Testament? It's a list of three. You ready? Who was called God's Son in the Old Testament? Well, the first group that was called God's Son in the Old Testament were the heavenly beings. Uh, These were the... 
These were the Ben Elohim. They take the same, one of the same names of God, the, 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 the sons of God. They're the, they're the created beings that are higher than people. We call them angels, right? Cherubim and seraphim and, and, and all, all of those. And they're in the assembly in heaven. And apparently of all that God has made, sentient beings, uh, they have to present themselves before God and, 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 and make themselves accountable. And, and they come before God periodically. And he says, what have you been doing in your existence? Not for God to learn, but for them to confess. And we read in, John, and we, and we read in Job chapter 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, and Satan was also among them. So in the Old Testament, the highly created, highly exalted heavenly beings are called the sons of God. Satan is in that group. How about that? The second group called the sons of God was the nation of Israel, not the geography, the people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that when Moses goes to Pharaoh in, in Exodus chapter 4, we read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And the end of the verse says, let my son go. You've kidnapped my son. So the heavenly beings are called the sons of God. Israel is called the sons of God. And lastly and most importantly, God's appointed and anointed king is called the son of God. And the greatest of the kings in the Old Testament was David. We read about God's relationship with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in verse 14, God says of David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. That's who are called God's son in the Old Testament. Here's a better question. Who called Jesus the son of God in the New Testament? It's a list of four, and I'll be almost finished here. Who called Jesus the son of God in the New Testament? Well, we start with the evangelists. Do you know who the evangelists were in the New Testament? The first four are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writers of the four gospels. They write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the, of the New Testament. And the whole point of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are these selective biographies about Jesus Christ for you to read and learn what he's like and for you to believe in him, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He said, I wrote all these things that you might know who he is and believe in him. That, that's what makes them evangelists. And here's the first verse in Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark just starts with it. So people who want you to know about Jesus and believe in him want you to know that he's the son of God. That's the first answer to the question. Here's, here's answer number two. The disciples also called Jesus the son of God. In Matthew chapters 13 and 14, we have a couple of miracles. Jesus takes a little boy's happy meal. It's five, five dinner rolls and two little fish, two little sardines. And there's a multitude of 5,000 men and their families. And Jesus says, we gotta feed all these people. 
Andrew brings a little boy's meal and he says, this ain't much, but I'll give it to you, Jesus. And by the way, that's a great way to live your life. Uh, Look, I don't have much, but Jesus, I'll put it in your hands, see what you can do with it. Jesus prays over it, begins to break it. And he feeds all 5,000 men, all of their wives, and all of their 2.5 children that were in the crowd that day. And the Bible says there were 12 basketfuls left over. Only, we think of baskets, you need to think of baskets. The same word for basket in Matthew 14 is the same word that Luke used in the book of Acts that Paul was placed in a basket and lowered over the wall of Jerusalem so he could escape. It's 12 basketfuls of leftovers that are human size. Well, that was a pretty good miracle, would you agree? So the disciples see that. They're tired from a day of ministry, so Jesus says, get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake. We're gonna, we're gonna go on a little retreat and we're gonna rest. I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. Do you remember this story? Now, several of the disciples are professional fishermen. They know how to handle a boat on the water. They get in the boat, a furious storm comes over the lake. They are afraid they're gonna drown. They look up and they see a figure out in the middle of the water. You know what he's doing? He's walking on the lake and he's not sinking. It's the Lord Jesus. At the end of that, when Jesus calms the storm and comes onto the boat with them, here's what they say of him. Matthew 14, 33. It's the reaction to Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the lake. Those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And may I say to you, one of the best ways you can ever worship Jesus is to come to that conclusion yourself and believe that he is the son of God. So the evangelists believe he's the son of God. The disciples call him the son of God. The third group is going to surprise you. It's the demons, the unclean spirits. And they come into the presence of the Lord Jesus, and he delivers these poor victims of their, of their chicanery and their evil. And, and they always cry out. When they leave that human, when Jesus delivers them and casts them out, they always confess as they leave. Mark 3.11, the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. My friends, don't go through life having demons and unclean spirits possessing better doctrine than you possess. I mean, if you're gonna think about Jesus, at least think about him accurately. All of hell does. The fourth group that called Jesus the son of God is the best group for us. Unless you're Randy Hirschberger, unless you're Jewish. The fourth group is the Gentiles. You see, there were some non-Jews in the crowd that day watching Jesus hang on the cross. One of them was a very powerful, arrogant man. He's called a centurion. Uh, The Roman emperor put him over a hundred soldiers sent him out in the empire and said, represent me and keep the order. And there was a centurion at the foot of the cross that day. And we read in Mark 15, 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite of him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
And even in dying that ignominious death on the cross, Jesus saving sinners and convincing people in darkness of who he really is. And God put that centurion's confession in the gospel of Mark to give you all the hope you'll ever need. Because if a godless pagan centurion can look at the death of Jesus and make the right conclusion, then you can hear the preaching of the gospel on the other side of the cross and resurrection, and you can know who he is too. He's the son of God. He is incarnate deity. What's the last thing Jesus claimed about himself? Well, he claimed, to be, he claimed to be a man, he claimed to be God, and he also claimed to be the point of the whole Bible. I mean, from Genesis to maps, yes? This thing points to one guy. I mean, from the, from the law to the revelation of Jesus Christ, you can sum this book up with one name. It's the name Jesus. And he said that about himself. He said it in John 5, 39 and 40 to the religious leaders. He said, you guys, search the scriptures. You have a high view of the scriptures. You search them because you, here's what you think you're going to find in them. You think that in them you have eternal life. But did you know these are they which testify of me? And yet you are not willing to come to me to have life. Jesus says the biggest tragedy is for you to read this book and refuse to believe in me because it means you wasted your time and you didn't understand what it was saying to you because the scriptures testify of me. In Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus says, or Luke makes the comment about Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is the point of the whole Bible. When you understand that, you have a decision to make. And the decision is this. I either continue being my own Lord or I dethrone myself and enthrone Jesus. That's your decision. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Let's bow for prayer together. Father, I just want this congregation to know who Jesus is. And Holy Spirit, you're the master evangelist and you can make it work and you can do that. God, turn on the light. Show them Jesus. Amen. Amen. If that spoke to you today, uh, I'm Kyle, the missions pastor here, and we're going to be setting up the offering in our final moments here of, of worship and service. But if what, what uh, Trevor talked about today spoke to you and there's a next step, if you'll just in these closing moments take a look at these next steps and maybe there's something that you would like to, uh, or a way you would like to respond to this.
And I would just urge you to check that box if you'll place it uh, on the way out. There's some uh, black boxes. There's also the wooden box in between the exit doors. So you can place this and somebody will be in touch with you and just try to help you follow up uh, with the truth you've heard today. As we get ready to set up the offering, guys, with the offering, you can come forward. In just a moment, I'm going to show you a clip of a recent mission trip we took. Uh, and speaking of that, just from an elder perspective and from the missions pastor's perspective and all the ministries that we have and the staff, we just want to say thank you uh, for being generous this year. It's your generosity uh, that drives these missions, uh, that drives these uh, the, our student ministries, all the different things that we do. It's your generosity. There's generally two things that, that I pray for us as a church body just about every day, nearly every day. The first thing is, uh, Lord, help us that our love would abound for each other more and more. We've got tons of, <laughs> of idiosyncrasies, of quirks, of this and that. But I pray that, that our love for each other would abound more and more, that when people visit us and they look from the outside in, they'd see that, that we love each other, that we've got the real stuff. And then the second thing that I pray for us about is that he would make us a generous church. And I think we're well on our way to being a generous people. And that's the way these things uh, prosper in these ministries. So as we uh, get ready to take the offering up, we're going to have a little race here. Uh, the clip I'm going to show you is uh, one of the things that we do on this mission trip is the, we get there on Saturday, Saturday evening, and then Sunday, Monday, and then a little bit of Tuesday, we put together 20,000 backpacks. And these backpacks uh, have a couple, several things in them. They have school supplies, they have a boy and a girl toy, and they have a gospel track. And what they really are is just gospel tools. And people from miles around the area of Chiapas know about these, and they look forward to us being there, and the kids get an extra Christmas gift because you're talking about one of the poorest areas uh, there in, in extreme southern Mexico. So it's a big deal. But what they do is they, they get the parents of the kids in and we present the gospel to them from Adam and Eve to the cross. So they're very well aware of it. So what you're going to see here, what we're going to do, we're going to have a little race. Can, the, can our guys taking up the offering get the offering done before we hand out 20,000 backpacks? Well, we're going to see. Uh, so we'll have a little fun with that and then I'll kind of narrate it as we're going. So... Uh, Joe, if you're ready up there, start the time-lapse video and offering, go. <laughs> All right. So what you're watching here is uh, after we get all the backpacks, you can see that's 20,000 backpacks you're looking at there. And what we're doing is we're counting them out and we're distributing them to, I think there's around two, 200 and some odd uh, pastors, and they all have a different number that they're going to take back to their congregation. I'm going to give a fuller report on this in a couple of weeks. And then the, the uh, CEO, we were, they're still taking the offering up. Well, we won. <laughs> Here's the second go of it. Uh, but, but what's happening here is we're, we're sending these out, and these guys will take these backpacks. They'll go back out into the mountain areas of Chiapas, Mexico, and they'll use this as a... Uh, as a gospel tool, an attractant to bring people who have never heard the gospel 
they'll bring them in. Now, also during this trip, we, we were out uh, in the villages ourselves with our group doing a little bit of that also. And I, like I said, I'll have a full report in a couple of weeks when we can fit it in. And then the CEO uh, and founder of Harvest Evangelistic Association, Greg McClanahan, he'll be here to give us a super full report uh, sometime in February when we can work those dates out with him. Uh, but we just want to say thank you again for your generosity. Uh, and one last act of service, uh, prayer team, if you will come forward. And if you were not able to write something down on that card and you still need prayer, man, this is just a way to, uh, to really be blessed. So if you need prayer, just come and, and hang out for a minute and get prayer. So, hey, thank you guys for being here. Have a great uh, afternoon. We'll look forward to a great Christmas Eve service next week. Be blessed. You're dismissed. <laughs>